Okay, Jesse, I know I usually speak for myself, but I think I'm speaking for a lot of people that we learned so much about Phil Hartman last week on his tragic episode. What is the story this week? When a gorgeous 20-year-old sex worker and a 40-year-old Tufts professor meet in Boston's combat zone, sparks fly, at least for one of the two. What follows involves drugs, sex, infidelity, embezzlement, stalking, shakedowns, and within only a year, a brutal murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Desi Prey. And this is Love Murder. Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about dirty deeds, rotten seeds, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And speaking of Patreon, we are thrilled as always this week to welcome and shout out a new set of absolutely wonderful patrons. Welcome to Brittany F. and Jennifer H., Suzanne G. and Suzanne C., Vivian R. and Ashley B., Maya M. and Kimberly U., Samara T. and Emily M., Tammy J and Melanie W, Katie S and Madison H, and finally, Alessandra P and Jackie L. Welcome. I know a bunch of you guys signed up for our bonus content that just came out last week, and we're so happy to have you because we had a lot of fun doing those episodes, which Patreon is kind of an unhinged version. It's like, it's like Love Murder After Dark or something. It's just... It's like a different vibe. If you liked the unhinged vibe of our pregnancy episodes, you will probably enjoy our Patreon bonuses. Yeah. Although on our happy hour, I think one of our longtime listeners said that she thinks that we're still unhinged. (laughs) That's true. It's the same level of unhinged. Yeah, we're still barely keeping it in check here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, this case is kind of bananas. And it is a testament to what happens when obsession and addiction and I don't know, all these like forces combined come to create an absolute train wreck of a situation. Oh, well, it's like a true love murder then. It really is. So welcome to your brand new train wreck Wednesdays because today is like Soul Train's runaway train, (laughs) never coming back. In the chilly morning hours of Sunday, March 6, 1983, two down-on-their-luck men were rummaging through dumpsters along Massachusetts I-95 Highway. So Massachusetts had just passed the bottle bill, and that was where they began giving people money for returning empties. One of the men's wives had wanted him to stay far away from the highway. She thought that the rest stop trashes were more dangerous. There was more dangerous people that were along the highway. It just wasn't safe to be collecting empties there. 
But the rest stop trash off the Mansfield exit was also filled to the brim with empties after a big Saturday night. So this is apparently back in the day where people were drinking and driving because after a Saturday night, apparently all of the trash was just full of empties. So the guy was like, you know what? I'm safe. It's fine. My wife doesn't have to worry about it. So shaking off the cold, the men approached a very promising trash bin. After collecting a few bottles and cans, they pulled out a mysterious bundle tied in a brown plastic kitchen bag. Inside was a woman's tan corduroy blazer. It smelled strongly of perfume. Strong, expensive French kind. They unwrapped the blazer to reveal a large man's blue shirt. And by large, I mean like XXL. This was a very large men's blue shirt. The shirt was wrapped around something hard and heavy. Then they unwrapped this giant shirt and they found what was essentially a small sledgehammer, though it weighed two and a half pounds. Whoa. The hammer was sticky and wet. Soon they realized that what was on the hammer was actually dark blood and that there was blood all over the men's shirt and the perfumed woman's coat as well. So there's blood on all three of these items that were found in this bag. At that point, the men felt a pit form in their stomachs. Something terrible, something violent had clearly happened. One of the men sighed as they decided to call the police. His wife had been right again. He should have stayed away from the friggin' rest stops. <sighs> oh my gosh. We're usually right. Just trying to make a buck, man, and you find accessories of a murder. Oof. Well, that little bundle of horror would go on to reveal a brutal murder that had been set in motion only one year before, when two people had met in a seedy bar in Boston's notorious combat zone. Two people who seemed out of place. Not exactly whom you'd be expecting to be turning tricks or being a trick in a low-rent establishment like Good Time Charlie's. But as we know, Andy, appearances can be deceiving, as can people. So today's episode is all about dirty deeds done not exactly dirt cheap, with a dash of stalking and embezzlement to go with our usual melange of sex, infidelity, and murder. Wait, I have a question. What's Boston's combat zone? So it was cleaned up by the time we were in Boston, okay. but I'm going to get into it in a little bit okay, more cool. depth. Cool, cool, cool. My grandfather actually was stationed in Boston during the Korean War, and it was already back then like a seedy area where the soldiers would go for peep shows and wow. strip teases and burlesque. Wow. So it was way back then, I think, is when it started, which is why they called it the combat zone, because it started as a place yeah. to entertain soldiers and okay. sailors. But then it really reached its grimy heights. You know how people talk about how gross and seedy Times Square was in the 70s? Yeah. This seems like this was Boston's version of that. And it's down where Emerson is, basically. I figured. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so my main source for today is the book Boston Tabloid by Don Stradley. There's also a really, really good book on this as well that you guys should check out if you're interested in this case. It's called Missing Beauty by Teresa Carpenter. And I did use some excerpts from her book, but it is a very, it's 600 pages. Well, the Don Stradley was more like 260, I think. So his was a little bit more digestible in a short amount of time. I also watched two ID shows about the case, Scorned Love Kills, the OG, and Married with Secrets. 
but these were not so accurate. If you guys really want to find an accurate portrayal of a murder, I would not necessarily recommend Scorned Love Kills, even though I love it. You know, they like make everybody like a soap opera star. Yes. So it's not at all accurate. They like changed the race of one of the people involved in the case. They like added in. In this one? <laughs> yeah, they added in like a female detective that didn't exist in the case on Scorned Love Kills. It was like, come on, guys. <laughs> it's just like an interpretation. Yeah, it was definitely an interpretation of the crime. I would say if you're going to watch one of them, probably Married with Secrets. That episode was called Obsession Has Its Price. And one of the people we're going to talk about, their brother is on the show. So whenever you get a real family member or a real detective who worked the case, it's always valuable, even if you have to take the rest of the episode with a grain of salt. So let's jump right in to discussing one of the people whose blood may or may not be on that hammer. William Henry James Douglas was born on November 1st, 1941 in Saranac Lake, New York. It's way, way up in the Adirondacks. So this is very, very, very upstate New York. He also lived in Lake Placid and Plattsburgh during his childhood and adolescence. And he was called Bill, I think, a lot. I'm mostly calling him William throughout this episode. The book I used actually mostly just called him by his last name, which is Douglas. So I might alternate between William and a Bill might sneak in here or there, but it's the same guy. His father was a plumber and his mother, Eleanor, was a part-time house cleaner. Eleanor was already in her 40s when she gave birth to William, and he was regarded as something of a miracle because they didn't expect to be able to have children at that point in their lives. As a result, he was coddled, protected, and kind of isolated. He didn't have any other siblings. It didn't sound like they had any cousins or anyone that was really close to the family. Bill ended up growing into this ungainly, clumsy young man and adult. He was eventually over six feet tall and over 300 pounds. So he's just this really big guy, but he doesn't quite fit his body. Like his head looks a little too small for this giant ungainly body. Okay. Yeah, he wasn't exactly like built like a linebacker. He didn't really have the proportion. And also for such a large guy, he had this very high-pitched squeaky voice that you didn't really expect to come from him, obviously. So I don't know if it's the physical stuff or how he was raised. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that he might have been not so popular with his peers. He was also smart, but really not as smart as he thought he was. It sounds like he was a little arrogant. And it probably also didn't help that his mother was German from Germany with a thick accent. And he was growing up in the years post-World War II, where there was obviously some anti-German sentiment, given that we had just kicked Hitler's ass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> After high school graduation, he went to SUNY Plattsburgh, which is the State University of New York, which is also ironically where my dad got his master's of biology. <laughs> oh my God. I know there's like so many weird crossovers. He was six years older than my dad. And my dad actually ended up going to, I think, a community college before he went to Plattsburgh. So they didn't actually cross paths. But it seemed like when he was in school, this is where this late bloomer finally began to flourish. He did really well at his coursework. He learned to socialize in college. He joined a fraternity. He even began to date for the very first time in his life. Unfortunately, his father died before he could see his son graduate college, and Eleanor's mental health began to decline after her husband's death. Visitors to the Douglas home after Bill Sr.'s death said that William exhibited a cruel streak, and he was witnessed by several people being extremely rude to his mother on more than one occasion. Oh. It was somebody said that 
she was trying to like tell a story something he's like won't you just shut up mom and this was like when she's grieving and she's not doing very well after his death so hard yeah when he was back in school william met a prim and focused nursing student named nancy bolton the couple hit it off and they married shortly after bill graduated nancy was described as stoic plain and heavyset She was, however, pretty crazy about William or Bill, and it seems like he had never really had a woman give him that kind of intense, focused attention who thought he was so smart and so great and was just raving over him, and that really attracted him to Nancy, that she seemed so crazy about him. Oh, and also, it's 1963, and I think this was, the early 60s were still an era where people just got married. Like, my dad got married right out of dental school or while he was in dental school and then got divorced in like six months because he was like, well, that was a mistake. But it was just like the thing everyone was doing. They were becoming adults and it was like you're graduating college and you're also getting married at the same time and you're starting your career together. Bill began teaching science at high school, which is really funny because that's what my dad did too before he went back for his DDS. But very soon after that, he was granted a National Science Foundation fellowship for a year of postgraduate study at Yale. So this was a huge turning point for him. He followed that up with postgraduate work at Brown University, eventually earning his master's and a doctorate in biomedical sciences. Whoa. Yes. So he really turned things around. He's like a little chugga-chugga-choo-choo train with the momentum because they said in elementary school and high school, he really didn't get that great of grades. So it seemed like then he went to SUNY and it started picking up. Then he did great at Yale. And now he is getting a doctorate and a master's from an Ivy League institution, which is crazy. Yeah. 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 So he became the director of an electron microscopy facility, uh, which was one of the first words my dad taught me when I was little, electron microscopy. He also worked at this place called the W. Alton Jones Cell Science Center. He did so well that he published multiple science papers. He sat on many prestigious boards and he was asked in 1978 to become a tenured professor at Tufts Medical School in Boston. By now, sadly, he had lost his mother. So it's really just him and Nancy and Nancy's family. She had started working as a nurse in Boston. And during this whole time between graduating from SUNY Plattsburgh and now in 1978, they're in Boston, they also had three children. They had two boys and a girl. And they ended up settling in an upscale suburb of Boston called Sharon, Massachusetts. Oh, fancy. Yes. I like looked it up and it said that something like 75 or 80% of the people in Sharon make over $100,000 a year. Wow. At that time? I don't know if it was at the time. I think it's like more recent, like 2004 even. What wasn't so upscale was the location of Tufts Medical School, which was located very close to Boston's then infamous combat zone. So we started talking about a little bit when you asked Andy what the combat zone is. So it's kind of like that area of like where like the South End and Chinatown and the theater district kind of like all meet. Like depending on where you are, it's kind of like because it goes down. It said that it's a little bit more like where Emerson is. That makes sense knowing that there's only two establishments that kind of would be reminiscent of the combat zone, which are strip clubs. So the glass slipper and centerfold still stand. And there's obviously still a lot of dive bars open in that area. But that's basically it from the combat zone now. The area had a reputation going back to, like I said, when my grandfather was here, stationed in the combat zone. But it was like next level gross by 1978. A reporter from the Boston Globe said that at the time, 
At night, the area turns into a Coney Island for the emotionally scarred and sexually perverted. Oh, my God. Yeah. Strip clubs, peep shows, burlesque shows, porn theaters, and porn bookshops were everywhere. Sex workers and pimps ruled the streets. There were dive bars galore. I guess one dive that was in the combat zone that still stands was an Emerson hangout that I went to a lot called The Tam. Okay. I don't know if you ever went to it, but they used to have, and I know you know this game. We've talked about it on an old episode, I think. The Tam had the naked lady matching game. It's like in some dive bars, they have these like computers and you can play games on them. And one of them is like, you have to spot the difference between two pictures, but they're like 1980s, like penthouse centerfold shots. So it's literally like a woman in like a G-string and her boobs hanging out. And you have to like spot the difference in the two pictures of the two naked ladies. So funny. Yeah. And, And sometimes you'll go to these bars and you'll find it and they'll have like the spot the difference, but it's not pornographic. And it's like, oh, what's even the point? What is the point? What is the point if it's not the naked lady matching game? (laughs) (laughs) So I used to play that game at the TAM. So the combat zone in spirit was alive at the TAM. So one of the seediest and busiest spots was LaGrange Street, which is basically an alleyway between Washington and Tremont. Yeah, it looks like that's what the glass slipper is on. I just looked it up. Is that what LaGrange Street is? Yeah, which is so close to my freshman year dorm, the little building at Emerson. Just a hop, skip, and a jump. Just so you know, the TAM is not busy right now. (laughs) The TAM is not busy at 1130 in the morning on a Sunday. But it's open? Yeah, it says not busy. So yeah, the mecca of smut was on this street too. And it was a bar called... Good Time Charlie's, which is really funny because there was a bar not on LaGrange Street, but like literally around the corner that I went to when I was in Boston as well called Charlie Flynn's. No way. So Good Time Charlie's was basically the place to go if you wanted to hire a lady of the night. It was like a well-known. It's like more of a meat market. And the people who ran the establishment knew that as well. It was like, The ladies come in and the Johns have to come in and like buy them a drink. And then they would take their business elsewhere. It was the matchmaker, 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 (laughs) matchmaker. Yeah. And there's all sorts of rules about like, like you couldn't sit in the parking lot because they want them to buy drinks, obviously. So girls would get tossed out if they were like caught, like trying to hustle a guy in the parking lot and take them out before they even set foot at Good Time Charlie's. And this was one of the seedier establishments but it was classier that apparently there was like a place in the south end where it was like pitch dark and you went in and you just found a lady and they just gave you a blowy right under the table like in the bar oh my gosh i know they were like oh we're we're at least a lot better than that (laughs) oh my goodness yeah so one of the problems with the id shows was that they portrayed William or Bill, whatever he went by, depending on who he's talking to, as like this guy who was like just this great scientist and family man who happened to just end up in one of these bars. Like he just stumbled into Good Time Charlie's and was like, oh, there's sex workers here? I had no idea. I was just looking to get a pint. But that was not the case. This was not this guy's MO. We know that he had in the very least a porn addiction He had a whole bunch of magazines that were about like sexual slavery and bondage and lesbians. He had a very varied and diverse 
Yeah, it's like some hardcore stuff that they later find. So they know this was his type even before this. It seems like he might have, when he was living in Rhode Island, been a fan of strip clubs in that area as well. So it's not like this is his first rodeo. And that's really what a lot of the media, even at the time, portrayed him as. Like this like nebbish professor who had somehow managed to accidentally get himself caught up in this seedy lifestyle. When really it seems like there had always been an interest there in the very least. Yeah, he just, he tripped on his way in, into a woman's lap. <laughs> yes. That was not what was going on here. So at this time that he is now exploring the combat zone, which is so conveniently located right outside of his working place, he was also not doing so great in his marriage to Nancy. It seems like their sex life was basically non-existent. According to Boston Tabloid, the book, some sources claimed that Nancy had undergone an operation that made any sort of physical contact unbearable and that she had blamed her husband for her discomfort. So they never said so explicitly, but I'm kind of wondering if an operation was necessary because he had given her some sort of bad STD, if he had been frequenting sex workers in the 70s before even they moved to Boston, potentially. They said she blamed him for needing to have this operation. And I know yeah. you would probably need an operation if some sort of infection went undetected and you had no reason to suspect you'd have it because you are a monogamously married woman who likely never had sex with anyone else in her life. Yeah. Wow, that's really sad. Yeah, but we don't know that for sure. We just know that she had gotten some operation done and there was some amount of anger involving her husband in this situation. So in short... He's not really having sex with his wife. Obviously, something bad had happened there. And he was not so innocent before he just tripped into good time Charlie's. Although it would seem that he became even less so after a little bit of time. It was at good time Charlie's that William met the young and beautiful Robin Benedict in March of 1982. Robin was 20 years old. So she was half the age of Bill, who was 40 years old at this point. Robin was a sex worker, but she had the good looks of a movie star. See, I think she kind of looks like Jennifer Beals, Flashdance. Okay. Jennifer yep. Beals, also the L word. But she can also kind of look like she's half Trinidadian, and she kind of could look like a pre-surgeries Kim Kardashian, too. It's like dark hair, olive skin, big, beautiful brown eyes, that kind of look. Reportedly, William was already a regular of Good Time Charlie's by the time he met Robin, and Robin had been mostly avoiding him, so he was captivated with her right away, but she kept her work to other men because she reportedly did not love, like, really big, heavy-set men. Okay. Especially if there was some question of their hygiene which it sounds like this professor was real nasty. Like he was messy and I don't know if his personal hygiene was very good, but like even his coworkers at Tuff said that he was the epitome of an absent-minded professor who had like the messiest office you've ever seen, looked disheveled, and apparently was really into like compulsive eating maybe because they said that he could get a large pizza and eat the entire thing in his office in one sitting. Oh, yeah, so he's just kind of like big and it seems like messy. So this was not Robin's flavor. And she mostly, because of her good looks, could kind of pick her own 
Johns. Yeah, I mean, good for her. That's awesome. Yeah, but it, maybe there was a slow night or something because after a few weeks, they finally connected over some disco music and his desire to pay for company and her desire to sell him some. While working, Robin went by her middle name, Nadine, and she told William that she was only working Charlie's to pay for college, which was where she was going to take graphic design classes. She told him that she had dreams of becoming a commercial artist. Now, this wasn't entirely true or untrue. Robin had indeed taken classes over the summer at Rhode Island School of Design, which is a very, very good art school, otherwise known as RISD. But she had dropped out. Quite possibly, she did hope to return someday. And she had also worked for a graphic design firm very briefly as well. The other sex workers say that Robin had something special going for her. She wasn't just gorgeous. It was that she also looked wholesome. She was a naturally pretty brunette girl next door type with, like I said, those big brown eyes that looked almost innocent. As a result, she was one of the most expensive and sought after working girls in the zone. Once William officially began seeing Robin or Nadine, as she called herself, he was an absolute goner. So how the hell did a nice, pretty, smart girl with talent like Robin end up in the combat zone? Honestly, there's never really an explanation that totally makes sense. Even Robin's parents, who are perfectly lovely people in a very middle class upbringing, said that they have no idea how it ended up being this way. And even her father was quoted to Penthouse saying, man, I don't know, somebody write a book about her because then maybe I'll find out who my daughter was because this came out of the blue for them. And you have to remember, she's only 20 years old. So that's not too far out of living at your parents' house. So she was born into a nice middle-class family in Methuen, Massachusetts. And Methuen was like one of those areas where some parts of it were pretty dicey and other parts were picket fence the whole nine yards. I feel like Methuen sometimes gets a bad rep, but I don't think as a whole it's a it's it was just like a mill town, basically. Okay, yeah, I don't know much about it. Yeah, a lot of really good working class people that lived there. Her dad was Trinidadian, but he had changed his family name from Lopez to Benedict while serving in the U.S. Navy. He married a very New Englandy woman named Ellen Shirley Menzies. I think she went by her middle name, Shirley. And that's how they ended up in Methuen. Robin's dad worked for Raytheon, which many people in that area did. Um, Nathaniel's grandmother, Peg, worked for Raytheon as well. And the family became famous for their big backyard barbecues. So they had these like big blowouts that everybody was invited to and all the friends and like the kids, like teammates, that whole situation. So she had a couple of older brothers and then she had a younger sister whom she was very close to. The girls were only 10 months apart in age. So they were basically, her brother on the show describes it as Irish twins. Robin displayed artistic talent from a very early age and was undeniably adorable. Her brother Robert said that Robin was the glue of the family. She always had a smile on her face and she was very energetic. And it seemed like Robin was truly meant for great things. She had the grades, the looks, the personality, and the talent. In high school, she had perfect attendance, straight A's, played the flute, and was voted best dressed in the class of 1979. Wow. So what the hell happened? Well, it seemed like Robin liked to walk on the wild side. She definitely had an inclination to date bad boys, guys that were a lot older than her. People that were already out of high school, but were not necessarily 
holding down jobs or going yeah. to college. So they were like, not like, oh, I'm dating this guy because he's older and I'm so interested in what he's his area of study. It's like guys that maybe had a criminal element to them and were a little bit of a bad boy. So also, this is the late 70s and early 80s. And a lot of her boyfriends were also black. And I think, Andy, as you know, like Boston has a reputation as being one of the more racist areas of the country. And (laughs) this is also like the 70s and 80s. So I doubt it was any better (laughs) than it is right now, which it still has that reputation. So there were reports that maybe her dad was angry with her for dating all of these young black men. But he said later it was not, had nothing to do with the color of their skin. It was really just they weren't very good guys. They just happened to not be promising insofar as having a career or going to school or having any forward momentum in a way that he would have liked them to be if they were dating what was essentially the apple of his eye, the most beautiful, talented, smart kid that they have. So we don't know if it was just her choice in men that she liked guys that were just a little on the wild and criminal side or what happened. She did end up when she was going to a community college meeting this guy who was a Patriots linebacker, essentially. The Patriots were doing some sort of charity scrimmage at this community college to benefit something. I'm not even entirely sure. And she met this guy, Ray Kostick, who... (laughs) was a Patriots linebacker, but he was not a good guy either. Ray allegedly used drugs. It was said that they began doing cocaine together, although there was a question whether he introduced cocaine to her or whether she was already doing it in high school. We do not know. He also had a son that he barely saw who lived in Georgia, and he had seemingly abandoned his baby mother and his son, but there was like some back and forth between them. So This guy had a very complicated life and Robin walked right into it. So Ray also ran in these like sketchy circles where there was like drug dealers and pimps around who were trying to provide the professional athletes with girls, obviously. And it was said that they were at some sort of party or bar when Robin met a guy named J.R., a.k.a. Clarence Rogers, but he was a junior, so they called him J.R. or she even called him Junie later. We're going to call him JR. And he was a small time pimp in his early 30s. So JR was immediately attracted to fresh faced Robin, who had to be only 18, 19 at this point. And he apparently stared at her all night. Ray Caustic later said two different versions of what JR said to him about Robin the first night that they met. In one version, JR had said to him, That's the kind of child you put on the street. Woof. Uh, Meaning like he wanted to pimp her out, obviously. But to another media source, he said that that was wrong and said that JR had actually said, that's the kind of girl you marry, which are very different things. Yeah. And if he ends up pimping her out, he's not marrying her. Yeah. In any case, I mean, Ray and Robin broke up. It was very dramatic. It was like back and forth and he got traded and something had happened. I think his son died or something and that reconnected him with his baby mother. It was like a lot, but eventually they broke up and it got kind of nasty because Ray was a Jehovah's Witness. So obviously he wasn't supposed to be doing drugs or any of this nasty stuff. And Robin had, she had been raised Catholic, I believe, but then had tried to become Jehovah's Witness for Ray to convince him to be with her. And so she called like the hall, I think it's the Jehovah's Hall, 
and told some of the leadership that he was doing cocaine because she was mad at him for going back to Georgia and breaking up with her. It was a mess. So that's in between all this mess. Obviously, she was very vulnerable at this time. And it seems like Jr. scooped in right when she was going through the loss of her boyfriend and not really knowing what she was doing with her life. And she ended up becoming his live-in girlfriend. And then he became her pimp. So this is Robin's trajectory. So it's like, how did this happen to a nice girl? We don't know. We was going to marry her. And then he decided to put her on the streets. Yeah. And JR actually already had a girlfriend and a baby mama named Savi. She was also a sex worker who worked the combat zone. And I believe she was also Trinidadian, but she was like full Trinidadian. And I read that he may have held over her head that she didn't have citizenship to keep her working in the combat zone. Wow. Wow. Savi and JR shared a three-year-old son named Taj. And it seemed at that point more that Savi and JR had kind of more of a business relationship when Robin hit the scene because all three of them seemed to get along very well. Like Savi didn't seem jealous or upset at all at being displaced by Robin. And in fact, Robin was very much like a third parent to Taj with three parents working these nighttime hours, as you can imagine. I'm sure it helped to have another person around to help out with the child rearing. At this point, Robin's parents had absolutely no idea what was going on with her daughter. She introduced JR to them and even Taj like brought them home and said, this is my boyfriend. This is my boyfriend's son. And later on, they said that it felt like something wasn't quite right about the relationship. Like Robin's very naturally beautiful and she started wearing a ton of makeup. And this guy was like, you know, wearing like fur jackets and he had no. like, yeah, <laughs> like actual pimp clothes. Yeah. Like jewelry and like manicured hands and stuff like that. They talked about like that, you know, it just seemed like a little much. And he was still at least 10 years older than her because he was supposed to be in his 30s at this point. So he had to be more than 10 years older than her. So they weren't crazy about the relationship. but They certainly did not know that JR, at least at this point, was not just her boyfriend, but was also her pimp. Andy, I genuinely did not realize how much a pillowcase could make a difference in my life. That's because they didn't until you tried Blissey. Exactly. Who knew that a better pillowcase could actually make for better sleep, which I need so much. So let's talk about staying cool throughout the night and waking up with hydrated skin and hair. Absolutely. As the first touches of fall slip in, there's nothing better than Blissey's award-winning 100% Mulberry Silk Pillowcases for the perfect sleep. Blissey's Silk Pillowcases are temperature regulating and have naturally insulating properties. So if you sweat and overheat while you sleep, Blissey is for you. It stays cool throughout the night so that you're not constantly waking up sweating around your neck or flipping the pillow around to find the cool side. On top of that, it is also so good for hair because it reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents hair breakage. It keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin because silk does not absorb the moisture off of your face. You can say goodbye to wrinkles, dry, flaky, and red skin in the morning and wake up with healthier hair. Absolutely. It has been a godsend for somebody who is a side sleeper, that's me, and for my daughter who has crazy curly hair. There are a lot of dupes out there that claim satin can be an alternative to silk, but that is just not the case. Satin is made from synthetic fibers like polyester, while silk is a luxurious all-natural fiber. 
Because it's synthetic, it can also trap heat and moisture. So if you run warm, it pools the sweat and heat around your face while you sleep. Silk is more breathable, moisture wicking, and gentle. It's also more durable and longer lasting. Think of it as an investment in getting better sleep and waking up feeling ready to take on the day. Blissy pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic. So you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. So good for those with allergies, especially allergies to cats who sleep on your face, like me. (laughs) And unlike other silk pillowcases, these are of the highest quality silk and are, most importantly, machine washable, durable, and even have a zipper to hold your pillow in place. It's also the perfect gift to give when you're looking for a gift for any occasion. Who doesn't love a gift that they didn't even know that they needed? Plus, it comes in gift-ready packaging that anyone you give it to will be sure to love. Blissey silk pillowcases are the best silk pillowcases on the market. They have a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally everyone. Men love them too. They have over 1.5 million raving fans, and you could be next. We have already heard from so many people, I think we talked about it on our Facebook group too, who said that they had previously tried a dupe that you can find on Amazon or something like that, and it is just not the same. Blissey stands way above the competition. Well, you can find out for yourself. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissey.com slash lovemurder and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder to get an additional 30% off. Sleep cooler this fall with Blissey. Yeah, so it definitely seems like it had something to do with men. And Don Stradley wrote the question that we're all asking, how did this happen? How does this happen to a good girl from, you know, the right side of the tracks? He wrote, had Robin been so upset after the breakup with Ray that she was susceptible to JR? Had she simply decided that she wanted fast money? Robin had none of the usual traits of a woman who had turned to sex work. She wasn't from poverty. She didn't have a drug addiction. There was evidence that she was dabbling in cocaine. Later it suggested maybe she was getting into the buying and selling of cocaine, though we don't have any evidence that that's true. She had a relationship with a known coke dealer in the area. But it didn't seem that she was actually in the throes of addiction. In fact, like nobody ever really reported seeing her even seeing like seeming like she was like on a ton of coke. And later on, she talks about like when she's with William, like she and him end up doing cocaine. But she was always very careful to like make sure that her nose was clean and that she like nobody knew she was doing drugs. Yeah, she wasn't like careless about it. Exactly. She wasn't helpless. She was very smart and capable. Could it be that a girl from a good home can feel so emotionally deprived and vulnerable that she'd fall for a pimp's line of patter? Maybe that's it. Though she'd always enjoyed sex, Robin had never been promiscuous. Ray Caustic would later say that she was not the sleep-around type. What she did have was a tendency to do whatever it took to gain a man's approval. For Ray Caustic, she took up his religion. For JR, she took a much bolder step, becoming a sex worker. Her artistic talent and bright personality had impressed her boss at Screen Print, which was where she worked for the graphic design company. But he suspected that Robin was easily persuaded by whatever man she was involved with at the time. Six months strong, she was reading the Bible every noontime when she was involved with Ray Caustic. But once he left her, that kind of threw her nose out of joint. All of a sudden, she dropped the religious angle and she was going out all the time again. Other people who knew her said that... Maybe she just got involved with JR and she couldn't get out. But that's, I mean, the best guess. We actually don't know a lot about either William or 
Robin's motivations in this. Most of what we know about the two of them comes from letters that were discovered after being written back and forth to one another. And from these letters, we can tell that William became absolutely obsessed with Robin. So she had what they called a trick pad, which was, it's essentially like a small apartment, usually like some sort of like studio situation that is only outfitted for bringing Johns to. It's hers by herself? It's hers. Like she rents it. She doesn't own it. She literally called it her trick pad. It's not where she lives. She lives with Jr. They live kind of like out in the burbs. I think they lived in like Malden for a little bit. Now they live in Natick. So they don't live in the city, but her, she has various little like studio bedrooms that she rents in the city. So her first one when she was meeting with William was on Beacon Street. It's basically, you know, a place with a bed and some candles and some like low lighting. And it's where you go to have sex with your clients. So at the first dalliance that they had at this place, it seems like William did not entertain any more ladies. Like when he went to Good Time Charlie's, he wasn't really trying to find anyone else. He was just trying to find Robin at that point. And he started shelling out extraordinary amounts of money on her. Because at first she was like, oh, it's $50 an hour. Then she's like, it's $100 an hour. And then she saw that he was willing to pay it. She's like, it's $200 an hour. So she's like really starting to up the ante. And at first she was like, this is great. But then part of her had some hesitancy because the other girls told her that a regular client is great. But when a client gets obsessed with you, gets possessive and controlling over you, it is very dangerous and ultimately bad for business, even if they are giving you a lot of money. Yeah. It's also just not a good look at Good Time Charlie's either. Yes. There's just a guy literally thinking that he owns you. Exactly. Like this is just bad all over. So they were advising her that she was making a mistake, but Robin was very young. And a lot of the other girls who worked Good Time Charlie's said that She's kind of arrogant and annoying. She seemed to think she was better than the other girls, or at least that's how they felt. And she did not do all of the things that the other girls did. Like she famously refused to get blowjobs, which seems like part of the job description. I feel like we covered someone else, though, who also did that. Yeah, it's like I think if you have a certain look and people are going to be interested in you anyway, or you have a certain vibe that they're looking for like girl next door like nice middle class girl or something then you can like set boundaries of what you will you can set stronger boundaries and command a greater price if you're in demand obviously and I think that rubbed a lot of the other working girls the wrong way and so when they're trying to help her by saying you shouldn't like go all in on this guy because it's dangerous She's like, oh my gosh, she's paying me $1,000 a day. You're just jealous. Like, step off. And they're like, okay, fine. Screw you. Good luck. She's like, you're sucking weenies at a dark bar under the table. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So she had a little bit of an attitude, it seemed like, which obviously did not make her very popular with the other people. But this all goes hand in hand of why I think she got in deeper with William is because working... At Good Time Charlie's is obviously not fun if the other girls hate you. Yeah. And I guess that she had, right around the time that she met William, had recently contracted an STD and had been busted by Vice. So she's just having a tough time. And if you're having a tough time, I would imagine that having a guy who's like, I will pay for your inventory of time and you just have to hang out with me because it wasn't even always sex with them. 
that you'd be like, oh, I can handle it. I can handle him catching feelings if it means that my life gets to be a little bit easier for the next couple weeks or months. So it seems like that's kind of what happened. So, of course, at the time that William met Robin, he still had a great job at Tufts, but things began to change. He was at first very well regarded, despite the fact that he was kind of messy and disheveled. They said that it kind of just went with his absent-minded professor persona, but he was very good at his job. He was very forward-thinking. In fact, Andy, he was doing a lot of research into ways that they could make scientific breakthroughs without using animals, without testing on animals. Wow. So he was doing pioneering work, I believe, in using certain cadaver organs rather than using real animals. Live animal testing. Wow. Exactly. So he was doing good work, but it seemed like after he met Robin, it was not even a slow decline. It was like a fast slide to hell because he started using cocaine with her. He began like basically rescheduling himself like he was changing his whole schedule at Tufts so that he could be there with Robin for most of the day. Don Stradley kind of made it sound like this was a guy who had never had a middle school or high school relationship. And it felt like he was being a schoolboy for the first time. He's writing her these love letters that are like the notes you'd pass somebody in the hall. He's like holding hands with her. There was like even like some move that they did where she would put a mint in her mouth and then pass it to his mouth, which is just very middle school. Yeah. And not hygienic. Gross. (laughs) Yeah, so it almost felt like he was getting to relive this adolescence that he felt like he had missed out on because he was very unpopular. And now he's with the most beautiful, popular girl. And so some of their dates weren't even really sexual. Like they did a lot of things together. They would go out to dinner together. They went to Rocky Horror Picture Show together a number of times, like doing the midnight shows together. They were kind of dating-ish. And he wanted to be the first person who saw her every day and also the last. So he would purchase her time like right from when she started at some point in the afternoon. And then he would sleep in his office so that he could still be in Boston to be her last client sometime around like three or four in the morning. Oh, wow. Meanwhile, his wife is raising their children. Yeah. And holding down a nursing job at a nursing home. Wow. Okay. They also went to one of their like Favorite places to go was Pier 4. Do you remember the ads for Anthony's Pier 4? I don't know. Oh, my gosh. I think maybe they just advertised at the Boylston movie theater, and that's why I always saw it. Okay. But I remember Anthony's Pier 4 being a big deal, or at least like a destination, according to the advertisement. What is it? It's just a seafood restaurant. Got it. Got it. Okay. But apparently at this point, it was like a ritzy place. I don't even know if it still exists, but it was apparently hot in the early 80s. So, yeah, she was giving him the girlfriend experience. And there was even like an occasion where she had JR and Taj not in the home one night. And so she had him go to Natick and she cooked a dinner for him and served it to him. But she charged him for the groceries, the time it took her to buy the groceries, the time it took her to cook the dinner. And of course, while they're eating the dinner together. So she was like charging him for all of this, but he was very happily paying Some psychologists think that maybe William had a delusion, a delusion that if he treated Robin like a girlfriend long enough, even though he's paying her for all this stuff, 
that she would fall in love with him and stop charging him along the way. That's how it works, buddy. Yeah. I mean, there's this is like a very he had a very pretty woman. I don't know when pretty women came out, but this was like his dream of this was going to happen to him. But he wasn't exactly Richard Gere either. Let's just say that. So, yeah, she was charging him for everything. And that dream was definitely not going to come true. And there was also some letters where he wrote about wishing that he could take her to Tufts functions instead of his wife and vacations he wanted to take her on and things he wanted to do with her that would put her in a more official capacity in his life. So I do think that having Robin someday inexplicably become his wife was his ultimate fantasy. Yeah, for sure. But Robin certainly was not in love with him back. And he was starting to run out of money because at this point he is spending exorbitant amounts of money on her. They had something they called a grand day. So he'd say, I'm looking forward to spending a grand day with you, wink, wink. And that was because even for not sex-related activities, he had to pay her $1,000 a day just to spend the day with him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He also lavished her with designer clothes, expensive perfume, whatever her heart desired. He took her to concerts that were not of his interest. They went to Air Supply and then also an Olivia Newton-John concert. I am dead. They went to Air Supply. Like, this makes sense for her. She's 20, but he's like this 40-year-old, and it's also 1982, so he looks like he's 55 or 60 because just 40-year-olds looked differently back then. And he had probably no interest in this type of music, and he already had teenagers himself. He had kids that were closer in age to Robin than he certainly was because they had started right out of college. So he's taking her to these concerts. He even ended up buying her a car. He got a Toyota Starlet. How? I don't understand. Well, we'll get to that. So yeah, he bought himself a matching one, which one of the detectives later says it was really like, it spoke about a guy who has a family who has like three kids. And instead of buying a a family vehicle that fits everybody. He buys this like two door, like little sporty Toyota number that nobody else can drive with him. It's like, this is where his priorities were. His priorities were matching cars with his mistress more than taking care of his family. Mistress sex worker. Like not even a mistress who loves him. A mistress that's just like, you're my best customer, dude. He also bought her Coke and got a safe deposit box so that she had a place to safely store her cocaine so none of the other girls would steal. So she would keep the cocaine at the bank. No. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is absurd. Only about two months into this relationship, it was becoming clear that clearly William is not going to be able to keep this up. He can't keep up the spending. It's insane. So he decided to start embezzling from Tufts. How do you embezzle from a university? So the first hint that this was going on is in a letter that he wrote to her saying that essentially if she was going to eventually break into being a commercial artist, she needed to look like she had real employment because obviously she's getting paid under the table for her sex work. So I'll pay you and I'll say that you're doing artwork for the university. And then that I can like basically pay you from Tufts, but you also will now have a record with the IRS of being paid for your artwork. So he was kind of suggesting like this is going to help her, but also now he doesn't have to actually pay her from his own pocket. However, 
it also came up later and JR might've corroborated this, that it, maybe it was her idea that if he was running out of money, that he find a way to pay her through Tufts University. So we're not sure exactly whose idea this was, but he ended up more than just paying her as a contract artist. He ended up getting her hired as a research assistant by saying he had hired her out of MIT, but using her real name involved in this. So by the fall of 1982, when he has only known her for about six months, Douglas had already managed to swindle the university out of $67,000. Already? Already. It was like six to eight months of knowing her. So how far in did he start getting the money from Tufts? Because that's like an annual salary. Two months. And also, I do not know for sure if Don Stradley had already adjusted for inflation because $67,000 is a lot of money to manage to amass in just a handful of months because they'd started like two months after they met, which would be in May. And I'm talking about the fall. So that's not a lot of time. If he had not adjusted for inflation, that would be more like $212,000. Holy shit. And they were on to him, though. That's the thing. He is spending so egregiously. They have to. They're forced to look into his budget because they don't know where all this money is going. And he had been there for four years and he had never spent this amount of money before. So obviously they're going to flag this. The first thing that they were able to do is they, he had this research assistant who was never in the lab. So like, what is the research assistant doing if they're not in the lab? Let's look into who this person is. They called MIT and MIT is like, we don't have a Robin Benedict. No Robin Benedict has ever worked for MIT, attended MIT. There's nobody here under that name. Furthermore, he was being very freaking reckless in what he was charging to Tufts. He had been purchasing condoms from a Tufts supply house and writing them off as, quote, biological fluid collection units. Well, I mean, they are. <laughs> they are. I mean, he's not wrong. And this wasn't just for use with Robin. It was a scam that he was buying them in bulk, essentially. And then having Robin sell them in the combat zone to the other sex workers, which, by the way, Tufts found out about eventually, even worse, was that apparently these condoms were so old that they often broke during use. Author Don Stradley mused how many diseases or accidental pregnancies occurred because of this little scam. So Tufts is digging into all of this and they're like, okay, something screwed up here. Just so you know, we're looking into this. Now, they did interview him and they were like, can you explain all this? And he kind of bold-faced, just lied straight to their faces to the point where they were like, uh, okay, but we're going to do an official investigation. So you should tell us exactly what's going on before we actually are forced to be in a situation where he could get fired. But even more than that, they could bring up criminal charges because he's Absolutely. embezzling and he's also committing fraud. And so they're like, why don't you work out something with us before we have to get to that stage? And he was like, no, I'm not doing anything wrong. <laughs> and they're like, OK, well, we're going to investigate you because we're pretty sure you are. So things were not going great for him. And it was all over personal, professional, everything. His wife, Nancy, had confronted him about his late nights not coming home. Obviously, he had some insane credit card charges at this time. Like, why are you going to an Olivia Newton-John concert when you didn't take any of our kids? Who are you spending money on when you're going to a lingerie store? And it's definitely not me. 
just typical like cheating stuff that you would see on a credit card bill. And so she basically, as 1982 came to an end, confronted him about having a mistress. And he did finally admit that he had a girlfriend at this point. But Nancy later said that even though Robin was singular, Nancy knew her as both Robin and Nadine, as William did. But she doesn't think that Robin was the only one because I guess Nancy had been complaining that he had been sketchy and not home and not around and kind of odd for months before he even met Robin. So this is another reason why we think that obviously Robin wasn't his first rodeo. Yes, exactly. Like he had been, and people in the combat zone said that he was a regular before he hooked up with Robin too. So he was being sketchy and gross before this. It's more that when he met Robin, it kicked it into a whole different level. It's also really funny because his coworkers said that he was very professional. He did not ever, ever hit on any of the women in the lab. He was never creepy with his female students. That's not his type, though. It's not. You're exactly right. I was going to say that. It's not his type. They said that, in fact, they thought he was completely sexless. So when all of this gets revealed later, everyone who worked with him was shocked because he just seemed like this, like, sexless, bumbling professor guy. But, yeah, I think you're right. He liked control. He liked yeah. women that he thought he could talk down to, thinking about how he treated his mother, thinking about that he was not attracted to women that had doctorates or were on his similar level professionally, which is interesting because we see this in another case that we've talked about involving a well-known male professional who's highly educated and another sex worker, which was in the case of Dr. Jan Canty's husband. And it was the same thing when she started getting advanced degrees and being on the same level as him, he stopped being attracted to her and started being attracted to the sex worker he fell in love with. It is a very similar situation. So Nancy at this point was understandably extremely hurt. She's angry. She's worried about their finances because she's busting her ass at the nursing home and he's spending all of their money on Robin. But she also refused to give up on the marriage. We do not know if this was because she still loved him, because she was religious. We don't know exactly why. But she basically said, you're going to stop seeing her. I'm going to make sure you stop seeing her. And we're going to get our marriage back on track because you're not leaving me. And I'm not going anywhere. Good for her. Yep. So she's putting her foot down. But that's not going to fly because... He doesn't really care about his family. He doesn't really care about anything except for Robin. He is singularly obsessed. So right now, things are just not going well for him because his wife knows. Tufts knows something going on. And now both Nancy and Tufts are looking over his shoulder at every dime he's spending, which means he can't really spend money on Robin, which means Robin doesn't really want to see him anymore because she's not here because they're best friends. She's here to make some money. You got to pay for that mint swap, you know? <laughs> I think that's a, a bonus. Like, it's on a line item. It's like mint transfer moment. That'll be an additional $100 per transfer. But what's more is that Robin, number one, is like, you don't have enough money to pay for me anymore. But number two, at this point, she knew it was time to set boundaries because he was getting way too into her. And also some really weird and bad things started happening to her around this time. And JR, who was still her boyfriend, 
began to suspect that the professor was behind some of the bad things that were happening to Robin. Number one, she kept getting busted by Vice. She had to move her trick pad several times, not only because Vice kept busting her, but because there also kept being break-ins at her trick pad. Weird. Yeah. It seemed like when she was with anyone but Bill, the police showed up. Magically. Got it. I'm like, what is in it for him to bust her? But that makes sense. Yeah. Also, why JR was starting to suspect that it was Bill was that very few people knew her trick pad's address because she kept moving it around because it kept getting broken into. And she experienced three different break-ins, even though no one was really supposed to know exactly where she lived. Robin also got banned from Good Time Charlie's. So JR began to suspect that William had something to do with all of Robin's hardships. As author Don Stradley put it, a rat knows a rat when he sees one. So he was kind of suspicious of this dude. Well, it turns out that William was full-on stalking Robin now. That's why these bad things were happening. He was following her and then calling the police anonymously when she was out with other clients. He was also responsible for the break-ins. Now, no one knows exactly for sure why he was doing this. One way was for control, potentially. He was trying to force her out of sex work. And if she gets repeatedly busted by the police and her trick pads keep getting broken into, she feels unsafe. She feels vulnerable. She's scared about the authorities. So there's a theory that he was trying to make it seem like he was her only option, that he was going to be the one who saved her and put her on the right path if she would only be with him and make her current lifestyle seem completely untenable. Yeah. There's also the theory that it was just out of petty revenge and jealousy and anger. These break-ins occurred when she had either refused to see him or there was an occasion where she did hang out with him for a standing date, but she was sullen and like kind of sulky and not paying attention to him. And it was a terrible time, but she charged him anyway and he was mad about it. So it might have just been a, I'm going to show you that I can get to you and I can ruin your life anytime I want to as like a way of weird backhanded revenge. There was also a situation where JR, he had basically JR knew William had given her a answering machine but he was aware that he had set it up for her. And it appeared to JR that he could call in and access all of her messages because he had set it up that way. And I don't know if there was some ability to also be like spying through this answering machine, but JR was getting like sketched out by it. And I guess that she had said something to William about this at some point, and he broke into her trick pad and stole it back so that there was no evidence of what he was doing with that answering machine. Hello, lovers. One of those things that you may or may not know about me is that in addition to Love Murder, I run an online and in-person boutique called Ririku. And it is the cutest boutique with the coolest vintage and items that Andy actually handcrafts and makes herself. I always dreamed of having a store where I could sell vintage finds, household items, apparel, always wanting to focus on smaller, lesser known creators and independent makers, but basically anything cool that I found from around the world. It's obviously been one thing always to have a dream, but it's another to make it a reality. And when I wanted to start selling online, 
it was just the perfect time because I found the best business partner, which was, you guessed it, Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses like Andy's worldwide. Whether you're a small business entrepreneur or part of a huge enterprise, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So that means your Shopify sales channel, your Facebook marketplace sales channel, your Instagram, there's so many now. So whether you're selling your favorite gourmet food from Shopify's in-person POS system or making your own holiday crafts and selling on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, or of course, selling some cool vintage finds like me, Shopify's got you covered. You know what else is good for? Merch. We are in the final stages of finally converting our merch store over to Shopify just in time for early holiday buying. Absolutely. I am so excited to be able to bring all of the tips and tricks I've learned over the past almost decade using Shopify over to the Love Murder store as well. It's going to help track your guys' deliveries, when you're going to get the goods, your tracking number, the date of arrival. All of that information is going to be easily emailed to you and it's going to make my life a lot easier. And your life, if you've ever tried to order from our merch store (laughs) before. (laughs) And also, Andy, did you know that Shopify actually powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States? And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. So he's all up in her business. She was also noticing that he was following her around in his car when she was out driving between things. So he's full on stalking her at this point. And then as for Good Time Charlie's, he may have inadvertently helped get her kicked out by telling other sex workers and the staff there that she was doing cocaine, which was not something she wanted them to know, obviously. Obviously, if she's always been clean about it. Yeah. But Robin hadn't made any friends there. And she had also apparently violated one of the rules. One of the rules I talked about where you're not allowed to grab a John out of the parking lot. (laughs) So I guess like the manager there caught her trying to do that. So they were like, you know what? You're just done. No one likes you. And you think you're better than our rules. So you just can't come in here and peddle your wares here anymore. So, so long. Good time, Charlie's. So Robin's not having a great time either right now. It's not a good life. As 1982 came to a close, Robin was really feeling like maybe this had all been a mistake. He didn't have a ton of money. He's also filling her P.O. box. So she had a P.O. box because... She was moving trick pads so much that she never actually got mail at any of those places. But he was absolutely writing her a letter a day, two letters a day. She had a phone number at an answering service so that she could essentially call, check her messages, and then call out to her clients. And he was calling her all the time. At that point, JR was like, okay, I think it's time to move on. You've basically sucked him dry and he's definitely more trouble than he's worth right now, even though they didn't have any evidence that he was the one who was tipping off the police and breaking into her place. It just seemed already a bad situation, even if he wasn't doing those things, which it turns out he was. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So on New Year's Eve, 
which is now it's turning to 1983. Apparently, William sat outside the Natick home that Robin shared with Jr. for hours. Oh, hours. my God. In the freezing cold, not with his family, who he could be with, and only took breaks to go to a payphone and call her and beg her to see him. And she said, finally, I'm not going to see you anymore. I don't want you to be here. Please leave. And then when he kept calling. Was she in the home? She was in the home with him and he just staked it out. And she and JR just never left until he had to leave. And so the next day she called him because she was aware that he had been just sitting outside of her home. And this is another situation where because her and JR were participating in illegal sex work, it's not something they can do to just call the police and be like, there's this client who's just sitting outside our home and harassing us. So instead, she still thought somewhere deep down that she still had the upper hand. She called him on New Year's Day 1983 and she said, I'm not going to see you anymore. This is it. You should be with your family. You should be saving your money for your family. This is just isn't working out for us. Like, I wish you the best of luck. And William cried and he begged. He wrote her a long apology letter for staking out her house on New Year's Eve when she told him that she could no longer find time for him, that even if he had the money, it just wasn't going to be worth it anymore. He wrote, it tears me apart and brings me to tears to hear you say that. But life is only going to get worse for him. 11 days later, Tufts officially suspended him. It seemed also likely that not only was he about to be fired, but they were also going to bring legal charges against him. Yeah. But he didn't care at this point. All he cared about was Robin. So she began working at a massage parlor in Saugus. Again, I guess like the combat zone at this point was starting to get busted. I think that in the mid to late 80s, there was a new mayor in town who was like, I'm cleaning up the area. So a lot of this activity actually moved to Saugus and it became like a new center of strip club heaven. The saucy Saugus. Saucy Saugus. So she's working at a massage parlor in Saugus. Is it a massage parlor or is it a massage parlor? It's a massage parlor. But again, this is another situation where she did not make any friends at her new establishment because she wasn't very enthusiastic about the happy ending part of the job. And sometimes would get into a situation where she'd like, oh, no, you're just getting a massage from me. <laughs> and they were still paying her, though, the happy ending rates because she was this really attractive young woman. And so, of course, now her coworkers here don't even like her. <sighs> well, he finds out, William finds out that she is working at this massage parlor, which was, I think it was called like the Danish Health Club. Wow. Fancy name. It was a fancy name for a not so fancy place. And so he came in under a false name and requested her. She was going by a different name too, but he had somehow found all of this out. And she said later that when he came in, she did service him like he was another patron. So who knows what that was? But she told him at that point, I don't want you to come back here. I don't think it's a good idea. Our relationship has not been very healthy. So I don't think it's good that you become a returning customer at the parlor. And he got really pissed about that. And he reportedly called the parlor to try to get her fired, saying that she was a nasty combat zone, enter derogatory slur for sex worker here. They don't care, obviously. They're like, oh, yeah, cool, whatever. And they hang up on him. Like, write a Yelp review, dude. (laughs) He would have. 
Then he called the police and said that they were operating prostitution out of this. He called the Board of Health. He was calling everyone trying to get this place shut down. And eventually the establishment just fired Robin and they said, sorry, this might not have anything to do with you, but we just can't get the heat. Yeah, you're causing trouble. Yeah, you're bringing a lot of heat down on our establishment. So you got to go. So they fired Robin. So now he's cost her a job. Robin also had to make a court appearance for one of her solicitation charges that was also probably because of him, because he got her busted so many times. But it kind of worked. What he did was because she didn't want JR to accompany her. She didn't want her parents, who, by the way, had now found out because he had also called them pretending to be a vice officer and telling them what their daughter was up to. So they kind of knew what was happening now. But not entirely. They didn't really know what was going on completely because she kind of talked her way out of it with them a little bit. Of course. Yeah. And now she has to make a court appearance. She's terrified. She can't bring her pimp boyfriend. She doesn't want her parents to know. So she asks William to come with her. So it's kind of like she's walking right into this. He created the situation where she would need him because she needs somebody with him and needs help paying for an attorney. And so she runs right to him to get help. Well, things were finally looking up for him. He's got Robin back in his life because she needed him for this court appearance. And he had also applied for a position teaching at SUNY Plattsburgh, which was his alma mater. And he had been hired because at that time in the world, you weren't able to get immediate references from people. This was not something they could find out by doing a background check that he was currently suspended from Tufts. Under investigation. Under investigation, I think when you're saying I'm leaving my current job, but we don't want to tip them off for you, they'll call previous references, but they don't call your current employer because they don't want to tip them off that you're leaving during the interview process. So for whatever reason, he got away with this. He got hired at SUNY Plattsburgh. So at this point, William begged Robin to accompany him to a week-long seminar in Plattsburgh prior to him starting. So he's supposed to start in September of 1983. This is still very early 1983, but they said, you're hired. Why don't you come and attend this week-long seminar? You can see where your office is going to be. You can meet your colleagues. And he really wanted Robin to come with him. He wanted Robin and not his wife to come with him and to meet everyone. He was going to tell everybody that she was a graduate student at Tufts and thinking about joining him in research at SUNY Plattsburgh. His famous researcher. (laughs) The famous MIT researcher, Robin Benedict. So he was offering to pay her $1,000 a day for this. seven grand. Yeah, seven grand for a week-long seminar. But Robin was smart enough at this point to say, this is a bad idea. I don't want to do this. However, she had legal bills and because of him, she had lost her job. So she needed to make some money. So she said, I think a week is too much, but I'll come for two days. So two days, 2,000 bucks. She's like, that's a good weekend. So this trip took place on February 17th and 18th, and it would seem like there's a theory that something happened on this trip, that something occurred where she made it very, very clear that they were never going to be together in a non-professional way. And this is maybe where he snapped a little bit, because over the next few weeks, they started arguing a lot more. Robin said that he didn't pay her for the Plattsburgh trip. So he's supposed to pay her that two grand and he never gave her the money. Oh my God. So we don't know exactly if there was other dates as well that he owed her for. 
But JR would later say that he owed her quite a bit of money that had been promised and he wasn't paying it. So she was rightfully incensed. At the end of February, one of these arguments got so bad that Robin had to take William to the hospital because he thought he was having a heart attack. There's one theory that maybe he faked it to get out of the argument, but it does seem likely that he had an anxiety attack, that when people have anxiety attacks, sometimes they do believe they're having a heart attack. So in any case, it was bad enough. So that's why I don't, I'm not terribly inclined to think he was faking it. I think he just had a really bad anxiety attack. Nancy was called when they got to the hospital. So he's there with Robin. Nancy's called. And this is the first time at the end of February that these women are face to face. Now, Robin had been going under the name Chris as far as when she met people at Plattsburgh because Nadine had already been burned in several ways. And obviously she couldn't say Robin Benedict because of the Tufts investigation if it all came to light. I think it was Chris Costello was her new pseudonym. And so when Nancy shows up and she's in William's room, she's like, oh, hi, I'm Chris. I'm one of his students. But now that you're here, I'm going to go. And she left. And she looked at William and she's like, that's her, isn't it? That's Nadine. So she knew. Yeah. She knew it was her. Well, the very next day, William called the Sharon police on Robin. So the day after this anxiety attack where the two women meet, he told them a woman was trying to extort him. And now in truth, Robin was on his front lawn. She was just trying to get her money, the money that he had promised her for services already rendered. So she's not trying to extort him. She's just trying to get paid. But he doesn't have any money to pay her, of course. So he's like, I'll call the police and just say that you're a crazy woman trying to extort me and that none of this ever happened and you're just trying to get money from me. Unbelievable. So one week later on March 2nd, Robin called Nancy directly. So now she's calling his wife and she said that Bill won't stop pestering me. I don't want anything to do with him anymore. I'm asking you to keep him away from me. Keep your man home. Keep him away from me. So then Bill, or William, whatever he wants to be called here, called her back and said, and when she actually talks to him, he's like, why are you calling my wife? What's going on here? I thought we were hammering out our differences. And she's like, nope, there's nothing more to hammer out. We don't have a relationship. JR's not going to let me even see you anymore. She's like, look, I feel bad. I feel like when it was good, it was really good, but it's been really bad lately. And especially with you calling the police on me. This is just not going the way it should. So he begged her. He's like, please, please, please just give me a chance to talk to you in person. Can I see you in person? And she's like, you would have to pay me $200 up front just to have a conversation in person, which I think that she was still hustling and she should not have been hustling anymore. She should have like let this one get away because it was clearly not good for her or him. Yeah. And she still didn't get that 2000 right? I don't think she had gotten the 2000 yet. So she's like, you're going to have to give me $200 of what you owe me just to sit down with me. And so he did bring her a $200 check. It's unclear exactly what they talked about at this point. But when she went to cash the check, somebody had stopped the check, which we later find out was Nancy. Nancy knew about this check and stopped the payment. On Saturday, March 5th, 1983, Robin spent most of the day in Malden preparing for Taj's fourth birthday party, which was happening the next day. It's apparently going to be held at a ground round in the Prudential Center. What's a ground round? The book described it as like 
not quite like a Chuck E. Cheese, but a type of like casual dining establishment good for children's birthday parties. Okay. So she was organizing who was coming, what was going on, calling the ground round and making sure they had the reservation for Taj's birthday party. And at 7.45 p.m., she stopped at Good Time Charlie's because Savi, who is Taj's mother, was working there. And she just said, okay, I'm going to pick you up the next day, you and Taj, at this time from your house so that we can make it to the party on time because I already made all these plans. So truly, they're co-parenting over here is what they were doing. And so she told Savi at that point that she was going over to a house that they said it was on the West End. And she was going to meet a new client. Now, Robin had been fired from the massage parlor. She needs to make a living. She was trying to reinvent herself as a very high-end escort with a VIP clientele. So it's, you know, the type of girl that you'd bring to big events and that sort of thing. Because she was bright and she could talk to anyone. She looked great. She was kind of going for that angle now. And she was meeting this guy who was very wealthy. He was a real estate developer. And he corroborated that she came to see him. There was no sex at this meeting. It was simply her dropping by just to see if they could get along. And then on future occasions, there might be sex. But for now, it was just kind of a getting to know you situation, which she said she impressed him. She was very bright. He felt like he could have brought her anywhere to any event. And that he was sexually attracted to her. But she said at that point that she had to leave. So she tells this new client, oh, I'm sorry, I really got to run. I have another client who's married. So we have to like sneak it in when his wife's not around. Okay. So at that point, she leaves at 9.45 p.m. Around the same time, William Douglas was home alone. Nancy would later say that she and the children were out of the house. And early the next morning, two men found a bloody hammer wrapped in both a men's shirt and a woman's jacket. These garments did indeed belong to William Douglas and Robin Benedict, and one of them was dead. While state troopers were investigating the bloody hammer and the clothing, a vice detective named Billy Dwyer got a call from Savi. Now, this was the time that vice detectives are busting girls, but they're also using them as informants. They sometimes are protecting the girls, depending on what situation is going on. It's obviously a very gray area type of law enforcement in the combat zone at this time. And so a vice detective named Billy Dwyer got a call from Savi, and she explained that Robin had missed Taja's party and that nobody knew where she was. And this was not like Robin, who had been very excited about Taj, who was always there for him, was very reliable. Savi said that she felt deeply that something very, very bad had happened, and she thought she may know who did it. She said, it's the doctor. She said, it's got to be, because I think they called him the doc because of his PhD in working at Tufts Medical. Yeah, I'm sure he flaunted that. Mm -hmm. On Monday, JR walked into a private investigator's office and hired him to look into his girlfriend Robin's disappearance. Shortly thereafter, Robin's parents also reported their daughter missing. Now, at first, the police did not connect Robin's disappearance with the bloody items found at the rest stop. And also, once they found out that she was working as a sex worker, they did not really take the complaints super seriously. So the Benedicts were so desperate, they went to the Boston Herald and begged them to write a story about their beautiful missing daughter, which they did. But eventually, when the reporter was doing research into Robin and her life, they uncovered the truth, which was that she was working 
as a sex worker. So I think initially the headline was Missing Beauty, which is the title of Teresa Carpenter's book, because they were saying, oh, this missing, beautiful young woman. And then very quickly it was a missing, and apologies for the vernacular of the time, but missing prostitute. And then people- Are you serious? Oh, yeah. They led with that. And one of the journalists even was interviewed for this book saying it was relevant to the story. We had to report it. That was journalism. Her lifestyle had something to do with her disappearance, and they were still defending themselves. But this was like a gut punch to the Benedict family. It was just horrible. Her brother is on the Married with Secrets, and he's like, everyone was just saying, like, that's the sum of who she was. That's it. That's all she was. Not like, well, what happened to this wonderful, talented girl? Or clearly she had gone down a dark path. She had made some mistakes in life. But was it really fair that nobody cared about her because of the professional choices she had made or she had somehow gotten involved in? So this was terrible. However, Robin's case was featured on a TV news program, and the state trooper who had bagged the evidence at the rest stop notified the missing persons detectives that the bloody items had been found the same night that Robin went missing. And lo and behold, the rest stop happened to be less than five miles from the Douglases' Sharon home. Furthermore, J.R. eventually identified the woman's jacket as Robin's and said it still smelled of her perfume. He knew exactly which perfume it was. Later, Nancy Douglas would begrudgingly identify William's shirt as well. And before we get back into William Douglas's whereabouts and story, I should say that the detectives looked very, very, very hard at J.R. He went through some very rough interrogations. He is a man of color. He's a pimp. I don't think that they're insane in looking at a woman's pimp and intimate partner for her death. But they rode him hard. Like, they went, like, real hard at him. Like, too hard, you think? I mean, I I don't know if there was anything physically abusive, but I do know there was a lot of, like, admit you did it. You killed her. Tell us where her body is. Like, a lot of, like, that intense interrogation. When he was genuinely grieving, I think he was probably tough enough to handle it in his line of work, to be honest. But he was genuinely distraught and he was extremely helpful. He was willing to give whatever evidence. He was willing to take a lie detector. He just wanted to find Robin. And there was also something um, delusional about his hope that she was still alive. He had hired the private investigator to see if there was any way that William had taken her to St. Thomas because at some point he had promised to take her to the Caribbean. And so when he hired the PI, he was like, I just follow this guy, this professor, and see if she's with him because I want to know if she ran off with him. And I think somewhere in the back of his mind, like Savi already knew that he had likely killed her. But I do think he really loved her because he wanted to believe that there was a chance she had just left him. And he was crying in one of the interrogations saying that they were buying a house together and they were planning on getting married and that it wasn't just a working relationship. It was love. So who knows? But they looked at everything with JR because he seemed like the most likely suspect. Definitely not some esteemed professor at Tufts University. But once they cleared JR and then they actually reached out to Tufts, who was like, oh, yeah, that motherfucker, he also embezzled a shit ton of money from us. They were like, oh, ding, ding, ding. We might have a winner over here with 
Billy Bad Guy. So JR told the police about the stalking, the phone calls, including several the police were able to confirm that were made to Robin on the night that she was missing. So he also called her a bunch of times on the night she went. The break-ins, the police tip-offs that he suspected were the work of William as well. He also handed over a pile of desperate love letters. So this was very helpful to the police for establishing how obsessive and how love-struck William was. Because obviously they knew he was going to play it off as, oh, I dabbled with a sex worker, didn't mean anything. But they have these letters that are in his handwriting just over and over again, professing his love for her. He also, JR told them about the answering machine, that he wasn't entirely sure if William was listening in, and that he definitely broke in to steal that. JR also said that William Douglas was the last person to see Robin alive. She had gone over to his house in Sharon to collect money that he had owed her and officially break it off with him for good. She wanted to get that money and get out forever. When William was finally interviewed by the police, they noted that he had an injury on his head. His small head. On his small head. Later on, he's going to say that it was an injury from a hammer, but it looked more like a scratch or an abrasion that was healing. It did not look like a blunt force trauma. He ended up changing his story several times about how he got this injury. First, he said it was a cabinet that he had bumped into. Then he said he was mugged in Chinatown. And much later, he had an entirely different excuse. William did admit that Robin had come over to his house that evening. But just like with his head injury, the reason why she had come over, according to him, kept changing. First, he said that she had gotten into a fight with her boyfriend. It was definitely clear from the get-go that he knew that Robin was going to be found missing or dead and that he was trying to set it up like maybe JR did it. She was saying, oh, she had gotten into a fight with her boyfriend. She was really upset. She came over to my house to talk because JR was threatening her. Then that changed to she was coming to collect some tax-related paperwork because he had actually been paying this Robin Benedict person. So she actually did have some tax or IRS paperwork that she had to do. And then he changed it again to it was actually to drop off some slides of artwork that she was actually working on for him involved in his scientific experiments. Later on, he would additionally claim that, oh, nope, all of those stories were lies. She was actually there to extort money from him because she had allegedly stolen research papers from his briefcase And she said that he had to pay her money if he wanted those papers back, which, again, is, of course, a lie. Yeah, all over the place. Yes, it's all over the place. He has another new story later. In any of these dubious cases, he said that she left around midnight to go see a client in Charlestown named Joe. In another iteration, he said that she was going to a bar named Joe's in Charlestown. So all of this is just changing stories. William said that his family had not been home at the time, but they came home pretty directly after Robin left, saying that they came home probably around 12.15 and he was already in bed. William said that Nancy would corroborate this story, and long-suffering Nancy did. She stood by her man. She said that she had gone out to New Hampshire to go shopping. She came back and realized that Robin might be coming over. So she wanted to take her eldest son, Billy, out of the home so that he wasn't home if Robin was coming by to see William. And so they left. It's not clear where they went. 
their middle child, Pammy, was babysitting and their youngest was spending the night at a friend's house. So she said they left. I think they went to McDonald's to get some food and then they were driving around doing some other things. And then around 1130, she had magically somehow picked up her daughter on her walk home from babysitting, which the police also said was very suspect that she would just be driving around and see her daughter and pick her up and get her in the car. So she also didn't witness her father at home with Robin. So they drive around for a while. And then she even said that she went to bring the children home at 1130, but she saw Robin's car still in the driveway. So they drove around for another 45 minutes. And then they all returned to the house at 1215 because at that point, Robin's car was gone. And Nancy claimed that William was snug in bed, snoozing away. Nancy really did stick to her guns. The police obtained a warrant to search the Douglas home, which, by the way, was a complete disaster. There was dirty laundry, trash, including food items, everywhere around the house. There was an unwrapped stick of butter just on the floor in the living room. They said that there was a TV set on the bathroom floor, like you couldn't get into the bathroom because there was a TV set in the way that doesn't even feel appear to be like plugged in. It was just a mess. There was a note on the fridge that it appeared one of the children had written, won't someone please clean up this house? But I'm also wondering if the mess was intentional because it's harder to search a house that is really, 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 really messy. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. Also, this is March and their Christmas tree was on their deck. They had taken it out of their house at least, but it was still just sitting on their deck. I mean, everything about this was people who had just given up, which was what the police felt. They felt like Nancy especially was just so beaten down by this situation that she had given up trying and he wasn't around and he was still obsessed with Robin. So he obviously wasn't pitching in at home to clean this place up. Not that he probably would have anyway, even though they both have full-time jobs. So the house is, is a mess. And they did luminol, but because the house was such a mess, they said that they could not be sure if it was just other human material, just gross, God knows what, dead bugs, different food materials that could trigger the luminol because this place was such a dump. So even though they were getting luminol hits all over the place, they could not be sure that it was just blood. Wow, that's gross. It is pretty, pretty gross. But they did find quite a few other things that made it pretty obvious that something bad had happened in this house and definitely that William Douglas was involved. They found boxes and boxes of hardcore porn. They found Robin's purse, Robin's panties, Robin's flute, and Robin's beeper. They also found a blue windbreaker in William's closet. In the right pocket, there was a strong blood reaction when they're looking, I think probably, I don't know if they were using the luminol for this or a different type of source, but they said there's definitely human material near this right pocket. In the pocket, they found a small piece of gray material, which would later turn out to be a piece of Robin's brain matter. No. The blood on the hammer and the clothes were all type A, which, of course, was Robin's blood type. It became obvious to the authorities that Robin was not missing. 
she had been murdered, and the man responsible had bludgeoned her so hard with the hammer that her brain matter had ended up in his jacket pocket. Oh, my God. So at this point, the police knew that Nancy absolutely knew more than she was saying. William would have had to been cleaning the scene when the family returned and had obviously left to dump the murder weapon and likely Robin's body. So they leaned hard on her, assuming that she would flip, that she was going to protect herself and her children, but she did not. So there was a detective who worked the case who spoke about this to author Don Stradley. And he said, I tried to get Nancy to roll over on him, but she wouldn't. I even said to her, why are you sticking with him? She just seems sad. Nancy's resolve became one of the stumbling blocks of the investigation. The veterans involved with the case would claim that they had never seen anyone like her. She was unbreakable. Lieutenant Sharkey spent time with Nancy as well, but failed to learn anything from her. She apologized to Sharkey, but refused to incriminate Douglas. You would have had to be married to a man for 20 years to understand, she said to him. Yeah. Three kids, a hefty mortgage. I don't know if it was just loyalty or if it was survival or maybe even something else. Some people think that maybe she was involved. Really? The state felt like they had a very promising case, even without a body. They had a piece of Robin's brain in his windbreaker pocket, which in my mind constitutes evidence of death. You know shit. Yeah, people aren't really walking around with parts of their brain missing without going to the hospital. They also located Robin's car in New York City. What? Yeah, so also the private investigator ended up finding William in Washington, D.C., two days after the murder because JR said, it's definitely this guy. Here's his phone number. Here's everything I know about him. The PI ended up calling the house and talking to Nancy who claimed that actually Bill was in Washington, D.C. for a business trip. And the PI went down to Washington, D.C. and got into his hotel room. And he had a bandage on his head, which they thought was really sketchy. And they kind of went through his things, but they didn't find anything. But the PI would later say that he got a very weird look on his face when he was digging through his bag. But apparently he hadn't dug far enough in his overnight bag because if he had, he would have found Robin's license plates. So that's why he got such a weird look on his face because he thought the PI was going to find them. Wow. So this is all involved in how he got rid of all of the evidence It would appear that after killing her, he drove her car to the rest stop, got rid of some of the things, and then we'll find out he drove somewhere else to get rid of her body. And then he ended up in New York City, where obviously he hoped somebody was going to strip or steal the car. Then he got on a train from Penn Station down to Washington, D.C., apparently to try to establish an alibi. So they find the car. And the car had not been cleaned out at all. So it seems like he really was hoping somebody was going to take this car and they would not find it because they found blood in the car and they found more brain tissue. Oh, my God, Jess. Yes. And the medical examiner was able to determine that the part of the brain that was found was from deep inside the brain, a part not usually discovered or found unless somebody had been shot in the head or they had been catastrophically beaten in the head. 
like melon cracked open style. Like this was very, very, very violent. So they theorized that Robin had been lured to his house with promises of payment and that he had then at some point likely when her back was turned to him, brought the hammer down on her head many numbers of times because Don Stradley brings up that serial killers who have used hammers, they occasionally have women escape because it is very difficult to kill someone just with a hammer. And many murderers have actually said they started with the hammers and then they had to move to a knife because it just wasn't getting the job done. So if he indeed got the job done with a two and a half pound hammer, this was a very, very violent end. And so they went to Penn Station. They showed pictures of William to the people who worked at Amtrak who confirmed that he had bought a train ticket to get down to Washington, D.C. Well, with all of this happening, you'd think that William Douglas was laying low, wouldn't you? Yeah. Nope. He was right back in the combat zone, still picking up girls. And I guess that he had already latched on to another girl that was his new favorite. Which I'm like, what m- money is he using at this point? Which, oh, also another thing that Nancy was pissed about, they were running out of money. So he made Nancy go to her parents and borrow money. And he's still, still in the combat zone after all of this. On Friday, October 28th, 1983, William Douglas was arrested and charged with first degree murder. And you'd think that this would be good for the Benedict family, but it was actually agonizing. The media coverage picked up even more and painted Robin in an absolutely horrible light. Robin's mother said, the papers never portrayed Robin as a person. It was always just the prostitute and the professor. They would never say Robin Benedict. They'd say Robin Benedict, comma, the prostitute, without saying the girl or the lady. I'm sure they're not going to say lady, but they've always made so much of him. Like she took him down the dark road. But she tried to get rid of him, and he just wouldn't give up. And it was absolutely how this read. They spun this story like it was a a moral tale of upstanding, fine, professional men who are lured into this with the siren song of the combat zone's horrible sex workers. Like, these men are the victims. And that it's somehow, even though she's the one who got brutally murdered, he's the victim of her. So this was terrible. They're getting answers. They're getting an arrest. They're getting what you, any loved one of a victim of homicide would want. But the media coverage made it so horrible and they're getting death threats. The family was getting death threats. They were getting pictures and letters and the mail calling their deceased daughter a whore. It was just a horrible time for them. Around this time, the Douglases also hired a dynamite defense attorney and he just kept the slander party going. He would talk to the media and highlight Robin's drug use and her occupation. He started putting Nancy in the papers, begging for sympathy and kindness for the family because her husband had just been led down the wrong path and she still had children to feed, which on one level, it is not the children's fault that they were involved in this. And normally it would not be Nancy's fault, but she may have had something to do with this, at least in the cover up of the murder. But still, it was like very much pitting this man that had this nice, wholesome family against, again, the siren, evil, drug-addicted sex worker. So it was the way that it was reading in the press was really bad, which was exactly what the defense attorney was trying to do because there was no way that they were going to get a jury that did not know about this case because it was everywhere. There's a reason the book is called Boston Tabloid. This case was just everywhere. 
So he was just doing his best to make William Douglas and his family look as sympathetic and wholesome and like your family. This could have happened to you. Could you imagine if your husband was just happened to be working near the combat zone and this happened to him? And that she was the evil one. So they're putting all of this out there so that when the jury comes in, hopefully they have a preconceived notion on the defense's side. So yeah, that was basically where this defense was going. But there's a lot of physical evidence here. I mean, there's brain matter everywhere involved in this. And there's a lot of people that are saying that they saw him involved in this whole cover-up plan. And there's girls all over the combat zone who saw the two of them together. There's JR. There's Savvy. There's like there's no question whether or not he did this. <sighs> because they also hadn't found Robin's body at this point, both the prosecution and the defense decided they wanted to cut a deal. It would be the best interest of everybody involved if they could cut a deal because the Benedict's dirty laundry and William Douglas's dirty laundry would not be further put out there in the media. Now, William might get a good deal because he does have a bargaining chip. He's the only one who knows where Robin's remains are. And of course, the Benedicts wanted to give their poor daughter a proper burial. So in April of 1984, before William's trial was to begin, they cut a deal. If William Douglas would confess fully so they knew completely what had happened to Robin and reveal the location of Robin's body, he would be allowed to plead down to manslaughter, which obviously carries a much shorter sentence than first-degree murder. So here is William Douglas's story, which I encourage you all to take with a massive grain of salt. There's no way that this is the true story, but this is all we have to go on because the person who committed the homicide is the one alive to tell the story. <sighs> so he claimed that Robin had forced him to take her on the trip to Plattsburgh, that he hadn't wanted to, and that she threatened to show up anyway and, quote, raise hell if he didn't let her come. Obviously, there's letters that deny this completely in his own handwriting, begging her to come. So this is not true. So he said that that was the only reason that she was there to begin with, because he no longer wanted to be with her. But he said later she demanded $5,000 instead of the $2,000 that they had agreed upon. and. I would not be surprised if he did owe her $5,000, maybe the two grand that was for that trip, but he was spending so much money on her, it wouldn't be surprising if he had tallied up three grand in other expenses. That he hadn't paid her, yeah. Yep. So according to Boston Tabloid, the story continued with Robin threatening to do harm to William Douglas and he in turn borrowing money from his father-in-law to pay her off. He informed the interrogators that he feared Robin would hurt him he was worried that she might show up with some associates and attack him physically. He explained that Robin had a violent past and would often make people pay for bothering her. So now he's saying it's definitely he's the victim again. He's scared of her. He moved on to the night of March 5th, 1983, where William claimed that it was Robin who brought the hammer to his house. Now, this is just ridiculous because he even says, well, she borrowed it from me to do oh some God. work. Oh my God, no. At her house. It was his. Well, it was actually his father in law's. So he's like, she actually borrowed it from me because she just has this new house and she was working on it. So she was maybe bringing it back, but maybe she was just intending to attack me with it. But the whole thing was that this hammer belonged to his in laws and they know because 
when they found the hammer, they thought it was very strange that had the specific hook on the bottom of it. And when they went to Nancy's parents' house, her father had an entire workshop and all of the tools had this hook on it so he could hang them up. So they know exactly where he got this weapon. He got it, not she brought it. But he's saying that she brought this and she hid this hammer under her coat. And when he told her that he was only going to give her the $2,000 he actually owed her and not the $5,000 she wanted, he claimed that Robin then revealed the hammer that she brought from her house, even though it belonged to him and really his father-in-law. And then she started attacking him with him, somehow getting this, she's a tiny thing. She's barely 100 pounds. He is over 300 pounds and over six foot. And apparently she is managing to somehow get this to his giant tiny head like three times before he wrestles it away from her. And he claims that he was holding it but she kept like a wildcat fighting him and trying to take him down and attacking him physically. So then just to stop her, just in self-defense, he brought the hammer down on her head two or three times. There's so much wrong with this because the doctors and the forensics, people said that it just wouldn't be possible for it to happen, like he said, because this hammer was unwieldy. It weighed two and a half pounds. And he said that in quick succession, he brought it down quickly over her head two or three times. This is not a type of hammer that you can do that. You're not just like bang, 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 hammering a nail with it. And they also said that he said after only hitting her two or maybe three times, her brain was spilling out of her head. Oh, my God. Oh. Yes. And they said that this would take significantly more force and more times more like 10 or 12 hits for that to occur. So... There's a lot wrong with what he's saying. He said that then he felt sick. This had happened in his bedroom. He couldn't believe that it had happened. He was scared. He said that he told Nancy to keep the kids out of the house while he got all of the murder paraphernalia and Robin's body out of the house. He said he dragged her in a blue comforter off his deck and they had actually wondered if she had been murdered in some sort of forest because they did find pine needles in the back of her car, in the trunk of her car. And it was, in fact, because of the Christmas tree being still out on the porch that she had pine needles on her body and on the comforter that ended up in the trunk with her body. So he said he puts her in the trunk and then he went and dumped the clothes and the hammer. He next went to Brookline, but he said he was going to dump her in a dumpster in Brookline, which is a very nice community. I think it's like part of Boston, but they call it like a ritzy suburb of Boston. So he opens a thing and he said that he heard some wheezing or like death rattling coming from Robin. So he freaked out and he closed the trunk again. And then he drove all the way to Rhode Island. And uh, this kind of makes sense because he'd be familiar with Rhode Island because of Brown. And he got coffee at a Hojo. And he eventually said that he dumped her body in the back dumpster of a shopping center in Providence. And then he abandoned her car at a Providence bus station and took a bus home to Foxborough, where his wife Nancy picked him up. He said that he then told her what he had done and Nancy was furious. And... He said that then he changed his mind, although I think Nancy might have been part of this. He went back to Providence, drove the car to New York City where it was more likely to be stolen, and then went on to Washington, D.C., where he tossed her license plates as well. So none of this also makes sense that she would come 
not with her boyfriend, who is her pimp. If she really wanted to attack him, she would come alone and not with a gun or something or a knife even, but an unwieldy hammer that he had lent her. This doesn't make any sense. But the state accepted his confession. And the worst part is that after spending some time tracking down the exact dumpster and the dumpster company that he had dumped her body in, Massachusetts decided it was too expensive and nearly impossible to actually find Robin more than two years since she had been discarded like trash because there was so many tons of garbage in the landfill where she had likely ended up that they just said, nope, we're not going to look. Unbelievable. So her parents are now completely screwed in this. He's going to get a highly suspended sentence. And he did not even really bring them to her body or give them any answers. And on the record now is this bullshit story making it appear like she attacked him and she was shaking him down. So this is just all over terrible for the Benedicts. So William Douglas was sentenced to the maximum for manslaughter of 18 to 20 years, but he would be eligible for parole in only 12 And in truth, because of overcrowding in the prison system and because he taught in prison and was doing all this good behavior bullshit, he ended up serving less than nine years. He was mostly considered a very good inmate. There was one occasion that occurred on January 1st, 1987, that was a blemish on his record. It was when he was caught getting a handy from a woman in the visitor's room. Old Billy Boy had a woman visiting who was spotted by the guards, her hand rapidly moving in his crotch area. And then they said that there was semen on her sleeve, on her hands and sleeve when they finally stopped her. Oh, So they said that he could not see this particular woman for three months' time. The old semen sleeve. <laughs> Happy New Year! I'm going to go give an inmate of a prison a handjob. That's how we all like to celebrate. Wow. Okay, so do you think that this woman was his wife, Nancy? No. No, of course it wasn't. But surprisingly, it was not also a sex worker. She was named Bonnie Jean, and she was a divorced nurse who was in her mid-40s who had written to William Douglas After hearing about his case and seeing him in the newspapers and on the news and feeling sympathy and love for him, she had fallen in love with him. And because he had also decided to turn to Christ in prison and she was a Christian, they had fallen in love. So he's got a new girl. On July 16th, 1987, William's attorney made an announcement. William had divorced long-suffering Nancy and immediately remarried Bonnie Jean in a prison wedding. And then he was released on June 3rd of 1993, less than nine years after going to prison. Wow. The Benedicts were devastated. This man had murdered their daughter with a hammer, confessed to it, never delivered on his end of the bargain, and then spent less time in prison than somebody who had knocked off a liquor store. Yeah. He lived the rest of his life quietly or at least under the radar. Maybe internet porn was good enough for him. I don't know, but it didn't seem like he got himself into trouble again. Bonnie Jean did die of cancer in 2002. He followed her into death in 2015. 
when he passed away at the age of 73 years old in a New England nursing home. He was in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is also well known for the Lizzie Borden case. And it does not sound like a good way to die, though. He had septic shock caused by a urinary tract infection. Ooh, that sounds very unpleasant. So the karma fairy got him in the end. Author Don Stradley makes a point to say that William Douglas was not a killer who loved to kill. He wasn't somebody that was driven by a desire to kill. He was a killer who wanted control. He was also jealous, but it was really the loss of control over Robin that had forced him in his mind to kill her, and especially because he had this pattern of punishing her, breaking into her house or ratting on her or calling the police or calling the health department in that one case. Yeah. And that this was the ultimate of punishing her for trying to leave him. I do have a question, though. Yeah. What happened with the Tufts investigation? This was also really hard for the Benedict family, too, because they ended up basically. So the Benedict family sued Tufts for allowing this to go on. Yeah. And then they countersued, saying that they wanted the money back that Robin had received as a fraudulent research assistant. So I think something was settled out of court between Tufts and the Benedict family. And I don't know if he got any time added on to his sentence for that or if poor Nancy had to pay some restitution. But they did determine that he owed them, I think, something like $73,000 in restitution. Wild, right? Yeah. Speaking of Nancy, there's a lot of speculation that Nancy was involved. So the hammer came from her parents' home. She had had to borrow money. He later said he did, but there was also some evidence that maybe it was Nancy who had to go to her parents to borrow money. So there's some thought that maybe she's at her parents' house. She's angry. She's embarrassed. She grabs this hammer and that she basically came home and said, you do it. I'll get the kids out of the house, but you're ending this tonight one way or another. She can't shake you down for any more money because goodness knows what he was telling her about the relationship and what was going on. So did she plan it and get the kids out of the way so that he could do it? Did she participate? There was some wild speculation that maybe he was trying to involve the two women in a threesome and Robin was disgusted by the idea and they both killed her. There was speculation that Nancy came home and was angry to catch her husband with Robin in their very own home and that she attacked them both with a hammer which is why he said he had that injury because he had said that Robin had attacked him, but maybe he was just covering for his wife. The detective said that there was clothing found in Nancy's closet that had blood on it. They also, when he did his confession, he said we a couple times when he was talking about the cover-up. He said, I drove and we, as in she was, somebody was with him. But it seems like none of the detectives really followed up on that strange language. They also had hypnotized him to try to figure out the best way to find Robin's body. So it's like, you're standing next to the dumpster. What does the dumpster say on it? To try to get him back in that moment. So they were trying to find Robin. And he said, under hypnosis, it's not me by the dumpster. I'm not standing by the dumpster. So who was? Whoa. Yeah. So there's a lot of speculation that she wasn't just standing by her man, that she was also trying to cover for herself and her own culpability. Furthermore, Nancy's brand of cigarette was found in the ashtray of Robin's car. However, Nancy was never charged with a crime. 
even though based on his confession alone, which I don't know if they worked out a side deal that she wouldn't be charged for that. She, in the very least, was guilty of concealing the crime after the fact. Guess it's just the things we do for love. Yeah, we're not love. Something else. I think she's since passed away, but she never talked. We never knew exactly how involved she was in the crime. In conclusion, well, it is since been closed down. My advice to y'all is anytime there's a combat zone and you are not active duty military, you stay out of the combat zone. Yeah, and I think it's also safe to say stay out of any bars where you can't see what's going on under the table. <laughs> God. And definitely don't eat off of the buffet there. No. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye. 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 